Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, global trade and global finance continue to be in the headlines and continue to impact financial markets. To get the latest on some of the key global issues, we turn once again to Bill Rhodes. Bill is president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. He's also author of the book, Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Frontlines of Global, global Finance. Bill joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Bill, let's turn our attention to Latin America. Uh, Argentina, uh, in the news, this you know, kind of blew up yesterday with yields on government bonds rising to the highest level since a country was last in default. Stocks in the peso were in free fall. What's the latest from Argentina? Well, I think the problem in, in Argentina, as we were discussing in the break, is that when Macri came in, everyone had great expectations. I actually did a piece for Bloomberg the first week he was in office. What happened, though, is he frittered away his time. So instead of implementing tough economic reforms up front, like Fernando Enrique Cardoso did with the Real Plan, and uh, Belsarovic did uh, uh, with Poland when Poland broke away from the Soviet Union, he frittered it away and he called it gradualismo, the Spanish term for do it gradually. Uh, and the reason he did that was because he thought it would help him politically, but if you don't take the tough measures up front, it blows up in your face. Uh, and last year when I was there, they, had just they were just firing the head of the central bank uh, blaming him for it. Uh, they put in the uh, Minister of Finance, uh, and he lasted two or three months caputo, yeah. and then he resigned or was fired because they uh, did not want to take the tough steps. Now, the IMF has got their necks out there, uh, just like they did on Greece, because they've given them the largest program ever. It's over $50 billion, and they can't be very happy now because inflation is over 50%. The country's deep into recession, Elections are in October, and all of the polls show, believe it or not, uh, Christina Kirshner, who people thought would be in jail by now, <laughs> says she's going to run, and she's running ahead of Macri. Right, she's going to win. And, and now he slapped on price controls, and, and having restructured the country more than anybody else in history five times, every time they get into price controls, it doesn't work. Uh, and you remember, you had a bad ending of Alfonsin, you had a bad ending of De La Rua, uh, the press in Argentina is full of that. I hope it doesn't happen because I think Macri has the right intentions, but uh, time may have run out. And so he's got to use the rest of his time to implement these reforms. Yeah. It may be too late. So I remember all the way back, maybe two years ago, when Argentina was selling 100-year bonds and investors were piling in and the biggest institutions were saying, Argentina is a recovery story, never mind the fact that it's defaulted five some odd times uh, in the past hundred years. Here we are, uh, the chances of potential default being priced into the market of Argentinian debt over 60% currently up from 22% a year ago. In your perspective, what are the chances that we see yet another Argentinian default? Well, I certainly uh, hope we will not, but uh, there's still time to take some of these tough measures, but it's not like putting on price controls. And the economic team down there was very slow to recognize the problems. And those who did recognize it, unfortunately, Mauricio got rid of. Uh, and so it's like my father taught me when I was a young man. 
said, Bill, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and Macri has all the good intentions, but if you don't take the proper steps, you could have more problems. And so uh, the markets are now fixated on Argentina. How people, people would have bought uh, 100-year bonds, and when you asked me that earlier uh, in the break, I said because there's too much liquidity uh, still sloshing around with, with all uh, the emphasis on central banks providing liquidity, the reach for yield, and people are desperate for that. Uh, so they went into all sorts of things, including those bonds. Uh, but, you know, it's not just Argentina. Let's take a look at what's going on in Turkey. Uh, look at the inflation rate in Turkey. They're in recession. Uh, and I don't see the economic reforms happening there. So I think there's a lot of problems in emerging markets. Korea just came out uh, and surprised people with their negative growth. Uh, there's a lot of weakness in Asia. Uh, Europe is very weak. Uh, when you look at Germany, the industrial figures, you look at Italy, uh, and of course, Brexit's unsettled. So the one part of the world which is booming for the moment is us, the U.S. But, uh, you know, we can't be the locomotive for the rest of the world forever. Well, how about going, going back to Latin America, Venezuela? What's your current view there? That was, it, it is such a difficult situation. What's your current view there? Well, I lived there 13 years. My daughter was born there. So I have a very strong feeling for what's going on there. The three things have got to happen to turn that country around. First, there has to be some sort of political change that, uh, that the Trump administration thought would happen a month ago, six weeks ago. They were too optimistic when they put on sanctions. So far, the sanctions haven't worked very well. Uh, uh, so that is one point. And of course, Maduro is being backed up not only by the Cubans, but also by the Russians. The Chinese, I think, are more realistic. They will deal with who's ever in because they have too much of an investment there. Uh, and I think the second point, which is what disturbs me so much and I'm spending a lot of time on, is to try and help on the humanitarian situation. Here's a country when I lived there, which was the wealthiest country in Latin America, had the best medical system. Malaria didn't exist. It had been stamped out years before. Now you have a malaria outbreak in parts of the country. Uh, you have uh, what the UN says is three and a half million out of 30 million population refugees, but it's more like four, four and a half million. Yeah. And it's growing all the time because there's no plasma in the hospitals. Uh, there's no antibiotics in the, in the hospitals. People are dying. Uh, and you see some of these people that go across the border to Brazil uh, in Roraima State or go across, the, go across to Colombia or elsewhere. And it's tragic because yeah. the malnutrition, I just talked to a friend of mine from Argentina before the show. And here, Argentina, so far away from Venezuela, they already have 500,000 refugees there. I'll be going down and talking with the president of Ecuador uh, about uh, what can be done with the Venezuelan refugees in Ecuador. So I'm working with a, a very well-trained, experienced epidemiologist uh, who's a standout person in this field to see if we can do something. Uh, we're talking to the Inter-American Development Bank to see if we can do something for the refugees outside. But what's really needed in the country, they've got to allow in aid, yeah. uh, humanitarian aid. And they now say they'll allow in some Red Cross aid, but really not clear. And, of course, the last thing before you ask me is what's going to happen with the economy and the debt, because this is going to be the mother of all debt restrictions. We've never seen anything quite like it because you have PDVSA, the oil company, has all this money out as well as the sovereign, and they're tied together. And the Russians have half of Sitco, uh, the oil refiner in the West Coast. So this is a country yeah. that I think is, is a disaster case. And the question is, what's the outcome going to be? 
Bill Rhodes, thank you so much. You're involved in so many incredible things and have been throughout your life. Bill Rhodes, president and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Front Lines of Global Finance. And when you talk about all of the uh, concern for humanitarian issues, Bill Rhodes also uh, just established the new Rhodes Center for Glioblastoma at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, His wife passed away from glioblastoma, which is actually the fastest uh, growing cancer, particularly among younger people people. Uh, So if you want to check out more, just Google the Rhodes Center for Glioblastoma. Intel reports after the close today. Uh, Anand Srinivasan, covers all things on the tech chip side for us. He's a senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So on it, again, a big rally in chip stocks. What's driving it? I mean, semiconductors are certainly the tip of the spear. Uh, we tend to be, um, or the chip stocks tend to be incredibly forward-looking, and they are prognosticating an incredible, incredible second half. Now, if you listen to what TI said on the call, that is uh, likely slower to materialize, potentially lower in magnitude. But if you look at SK Hynix, which reported earnings last night, uh, their optimism is actually uh, magnifying. So they're starting to see strength uh, potentially as early as second uh, to second quarter and in the second half. My problem with the chip rally that we have seen so far from December 25th to date is the magnitude of the rally and how quickly it's come by, right? So if you look at the earnings per share growth for the next 12 months in the SOX, um, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index is uh, projected to be about 7%. Um, and if you look at the uh, price earnings ratio of that same index uh, over the using the um, EPS as the denominator there, it's 18 times. My, my problem, and when you break down the components of that, right? So if you look at, um, NVIDIA, for example, which has had some um, structural issues. In the last three months, earnings for 2019 or its fiscal 2020 have come down 26%. If you look at AMD, uh, one of the better ones, uh, its earnings have only gone up 8%. If you look at NXP, three-month earnings for 2019 down 11%. So you've had a whole host of these companies where the shares have rallied, uh, dramatically so, 30% at least, and the earnings for calendar year 19 has gone down somewhere in the vicinity of 5 to 20%. So, so this is exactly, this is fascinating, fantastic numbers to put to this. Basically, the performance is not matching the optimism. So what could the chip sector be looking at? Fundamentals better catch up. Well, That's I mean, the bottom line. Fundamentals it, better catch up. And if they don't? We're going to see some adjustment. Is it going to be a, a sort of you know blow the blow the bottom out from under them and just watch them watch them fall? Or look, is it I mean be- the big part that has been missing in semiconductor demand is one is the handset cycle is waning a little bit. We all know that the magnitude of the the handset cycle weakness is something to be considered in the second half. Offsetting this is the impending strength from. Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, where the CEO went to my alma mater engineering school, but that's a separate <laughs> issue. Um, Shameless in, uh, plug. So, that was uh, so this cloud company's server strength, that these cloud companies' server strength is the has been the missing piece of the demand puzzle. 
Everybody's expecting that to come back in the second half. It's a substantial portion of CPU consumption, memory consumption, um, solid-state drive consumption. It better come back, and better come back in spades. Right. So, Dave, I think what I'm hearing from Anand is maybe these semiconductor stocks may have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves. But the tech earnings so far have been pretty darn good. Well, they have. And you have an interesting contrast within the group today. I mean, I mentioned Xilinx, the way the shares are taking a beating. On the other hand, you had numbers out late yesterday from Lamb Research, which is in the chip equipment business. They went over well. The stock's up almost 6%. It's going back and forth with Facebook for the biggest gain on the day in the S&P 500. So, you know, it's an interesting kind of contrast that's showing up within the group. On, and on uh, 20 seconds here, we didn't really hit on Intel. Uh, how important is Intel with respect to their earnings? You, you know, Intel a, is a little bit of a sleeper here. Between Intel, AMD, and NVIDIA, we like all three companies, but for completely different reasons. I think Intel expectations are relatively low. Um, we actually think they could uh, really do well with uh, PCs and the data center in the second half of the year. Anand Srinivasan, senior analyst covering the semiconductors and tech hardware space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks editor, uh, joining us all here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. question isn't how good were Tesla's reported earnings yesterday. It was how terrible were they? And to answer that question is David Kudlech, CEO and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital Management, overseeing about $2.5 billion from Michigan. David, thank you so much for being with us. Tesla reported earnings that uh, were below already very low expectations. And talked about raising capital even after Elon Musk has said that he wouldn't need to raise capital. Shares down 2.2% and that's it. What was your take on these earnings? Good morning, Lisa. Yeah, I uh, was surprised even at, at how big a loss it was going to be. We had consensus estimates at about 69 cents a share per share. And uh, FactSet had it a little bit of a dollar, but uh, when it came in at uh, near $3 per share loss, even more than we thought, we knew it would be worse than consensus estimates. It was really a, a miserable quarter all the way around when you consider the news we got on uh, deliveries earlier in the um, earlier in the month, and now uh, what we thought would would adversely impact earnings, uh, we this is this is definitely a uh, a very bad quarter for Tesla. So, David, it seems like Elon Musk is uh, kind of on the earnings call, opened the door just a bit uh, as it relates to an equity capital raise. What do you think is the outlook there? Does this company need to raise money? How much did they need to raise? When did they need to raise it? Well, they do need to uh, to raise capital. You know, they talk about having about 2.2 billion uh, cash on hand, but if you, if you take away customer deposits, that falls below a, a billion and a half dollars. Uh, they are burning cash. You know, they they went from uh, cash generation in the latter half of the year, latter part of the year, back to a burn rate near a billion dollars in this first quarter. And uh, you know, they thought they would have cash coming in from. Uh, this, you know, increasing sales of Model 3 along with sustained sales of Model S and Model X, that hasn't happened. He's calling for uh, 80 to, or, uh, 90 to 100,000 deliveries in the next quarter. I think he's dreaming uh, when you look at what the deliveries were in the first quarter. So I, the cash isn't going to come from sales. They're going to have to raise cash. 
it's an inevitability. So here's my question. I mean, one analyst, Dan Ives, over at Wedbush said that uh, Tesla's quarter was a top debacle, one of the top debacles ever seen in his 20 years covering uh, tech stocks on the street. I'm just wondering, given how scathing people have been in their assessment of these quarterly reports, why are the shares down only 2.2 percent? Um, I, there, I mean, there are some, there's a following for Tesla that, uh, I think some real believers in the stock, there is a, you know, we've seen this floor around that $250, um, from a technician standpoint, uh, quintuple bottom, whatever it may be. Uh, we've seen a, a floor in the, a floor in the stock price around this level. Uh, but you know, that was, uh, in, aftermarket trading yesterday. Today, we're seeing the shares down a little bit further. You know, we also didn't see the shares change much on Tesla Autonomy Day earlier this week. Uh, our share price changed much. So I think we've got some things to unfold here. He did come out, uh, you know, in the earnings call with some guidance that was very positive. And remember how this goes. And this is how we play the stock, you know, when we, whether we're, uh, whether we're, buying puts or outright shorting the stock and then covering later. Elon can bid up the stock on these claims and these promises of what he's going to do. He made some bold claims in this earnings announcement about uh, that all the hardware is on the cars today for full autonomy uh, in a, a year from now. But for level five autonomy, he's made bold claims about the deliveries that they're going to make for the remainder of the year. Uh, that they're going to be uh, a small loss in Q2 and then profitable in Q3 and Q4. I don't think they'll have a profitable quarter this year. But if you believe the claims that he's making, there's hope. You know, there's hope in the in the stock price, and it is trading near its low. So there are those that think it, it might have a chance to rally from here, uh, if not right away later in the year. So, Dave, let's switch gears a little bit to Ford Motor Company. They're reporting uh, coming up. And I know you've uh, mentioned in the past that you think this first quarter announcement and guidance are arguably the most important in the past five years. Why is that? Well, uh, you know, let's compare and contrast. Now we switch to, you know, a company that's really doing a lot of uh, or has had a very good first quarter. Uh, you know, Ford has uh, their, their SUV and truck sales uh, really did the best among their competition. When you look at Toyota, GM, Ford, uh, they, they really – uh, trounce the competition in terms of, of those sales, which are the high-margin vehicles. The other thing that, that Ford suffered from over the past year, really since Jim Hackett has been there in leadership position, is is that messaging, that communication, that articulation of the vision of, you know, there was the restructuring plan there, a multi-billion dollar restructuring plan. What is the detail? We've seen some of that more recently with what they're doing globally what they're doing domestically. Also, their vision for Auto 2.0, or what we call the future of mobility, and you know, we now know the Flat Rock plant where they're investing 800 million for autonomous vehicles, and uh, the hiring of Tim Stone as the CFO, who comes from uh, the digital community, that sign that they're moving to a new age company. There's just a lot of things, you know, very good performance in what we refer to as the legacy business. Uh, trucks and SUVs that are high-margin vehicles, they had the best stock performance uh, among the, the Detroit three, if you will, in the first quarter, and, and beating the S&P 500's performance as good as it was. And uh, then you look at uh, the detail we want to see on their restructuring plan. 
and the detail on the future of mobility, that's coming together. We're seeing what we want to see. Wall Street investors are seeing what they want to see out of Ford now. If they maintain the momentum, yep. it's going to be a very good year for Ford in a, in a real turnaround compared to uh, kind of a tough 2018 yep. and past couple of years. Got it. David Kudla, thank you so much for joining us. David's the CEO and Chief Investment Strategist for Maine State Capital, joining us on the, on the phone from Michigan. Well, right now, traders are pricing in the high increasing likelihood of a Fed rate cut in the near future, perhaps even later this year. And as they do so, our Bloomberg Opinion columnists are trying to figure out what the Fed should do in the next downturn, because they don't really have that much ammunition. One proposal by municipal bonds, and that comes from Brian Chapata, who is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. So, Brian, why was that the solution that you see as something that is potentially attractive for the Federal Reserve. Yeah, so I guess uh, I got a lot of feedback on this. So uh, first of I'm all, I'm sure you did. The caveat <laughs> is that if it's another recession and the and the Fed uses all of its ammunition as it has in the past, it's done the rate cuts, it's done the typical QE, and there's still issues. What do you do? And my idea was turn to the muni market because you know, states don't have the ability to print money. You know, they have to implement austerity measures during recessions, and that can really slow down economic growth. You don't fund infrastructure, you miss payroll, you underfund your pensions. Those are all really bad things that affect Main Street. And so potentially using the Fed as a tool to extend a lifeline to these states give them a little influx of cash that they'll eventually pay back when times are better, could be uh, a reasonable way to uh, jumpstart the economy uh, during a recession. So historically, just give us some history here. The federal government generally has not done this, correct? Yeah, well, it, that's part of the problem is that the, <laughs> the Federal Reserve Act prohibits uh, purchasing munis that are longer than six months. So they could, in theory, do some real short-term uh, purchases of munis, but uh, if you wanted to actually do something that would be a little bit more sustainable and do a little bit more than just a, a you know a, a really brief thing, uh, they'd have to amend the Federal Reserve Act. This would be uh, somewhat challenging, though, also from a who's your favorite child kind of point of view, right? I mean, basically, how do they decide which municipal bonds to buy, which projects to finance, given the fact that there are thousands of QCIPs? This is a very idiosyncratic market, uh, you know, a lot of small issuances. Yeah. Would you basically have an active portfolio manager buying uh, munis? At the Federal Reserve? Yeah. Well, my idea was sort of, you know, keep it at the state level. And as far as precedent goes, you do have the European Central Bank going out and purchasing debt of various sovereign countries within... Of everything and anything? Yeah, right. Within within its purview. So, I mean, there is precedent for, you know, effectively, you know, setting a, 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 you know, a standard and going out and doing it across variety of credit ratings uh, and sort of credit worthiness. So uh, that was the idea. And obviously, um, you know, the muni market's on fire right now. So there's no reason to to do it yet. But this is, again, sort of talking about a hypothetical down the road if we face some sort of, uh, you know, problematic recession that, that typical QE of buying treasuries won't get us out of. 
So is there any support in Washington or any other any folks in Washington or at the Fed thinking about this kind of move? You know, you hear about this every once in a while um, because I did go back and see if this was proposed before, if I was the, <laughs> if I was the very first person. And sure enough, you know, you go back to you know to 2010 things like that. You know, there was the Build America Bonds program, which was more of a of a federal stimulus. Um, but uh, I think the question is sort of, is there a political appetite? You know, the, the joke about infrastructure week is that, you know, it never comes because there's never this push to actually fund infrastructure, even though presumably it's a bipartisan issue. So uh, it remains to be seen exactly what the appetite is in Washington. You mentioned real quick that uh, munis were on fire. We have seen record inflows into muni funds. Why? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that right now the cap on state and local tax deductions is really making people realize that if you want to lower your state income tax rate, there's a really easy way to do it, and it's buying muni bonds within your state. Uh, This has always been an option (laughs) to everyone. But before, if you had a large uh, state and local tax bill, you could deduct it, obviously, from your your federal taxes, which means that, you know, it wasn't so onerous. Um, But now you're effectively... Uh, you know, getting getting penalized for that. And so munis are an easy way to, to reap some income. And I mean, the rates are so low, especially relative to treasuries on, on munis. It's, it's a real question of how long this can keep going on. And, but so far, so good. Right. Very good. Brian Chapetta uh, from Debt Markets Commons for Bloomberg Opinion. He joins us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Brian, thanks so much for that novel idea. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.